Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neelai Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, we've got a special 4th of July episode. Happy 4th to our listeners in the States. Decoder is only a year old, but our producer Creighton and I have decided that a Decoder tradition is that every summer, we're going to do an episode about the outdoor grill industry, which is gigantic and growing. It's full of new ideas, old traditions, startups, legacy companies, a remarkable amount of technology, and a number of pretty big characters. And the fourth is the biggest grilling holiday in the United States, so what better day to do our summer grill episode? Last year, we talked to Roger Dolly, the CEO of Blackstone Products, a new griddle company that saw explosive sales during the pandemic. A few months after we talked, Blackstone actually went public. The company says it will do over $600 million in revenue this year. Today, I'm talking to Jeremy Andrews, the CEO of Traeger, which makes absolutely beloved wood pellet smokers with all sorts of features. High-end models even have cloud connectivity, so you can control them from your phone. Traeger also recently went public. The company says it will book between $800 and $850 million in revenue in 2022. Now, the Traeger story is fascinating. The company had been around for 27 years and not growing very much when Jeremy bought it with the help of a private equity company and became the CEO. He had no previous background in the cooking market. He had previously been CEO of Skullcandy, the headphone brand. And as he'll tell you, his early run as CEO of Traeger was a bit of a nightmare, culminating in an arson. A truck at one of Traeger's warehouses was set on fire, leading Jeremy to say the company's culture was irrevocably broken. He responded by cleaning house, replacing most of the team, and moving the company from Oregon to Utah. Since then, Traeger has grown revenue by 10x, and you'll hear Jeremy say he expects the company to close in on a billion dollars in revenue soon. But he still has all the challenges you'd expect of any modern company. Supply chain issues, figuring out how to grow recurring revenue, managing and expanding software division, and of course, consumer behavior that's changing as one version of the pandemic seems to be ending, and people are spending their money on travel instead of home goods. This episode's a little longer than usual, but it's a good one. Jeremy and I got really deep into the benefits and drawbacks of private equity taking over companies, about what it's like to run a public company, which he swore he'd never do again after he was the CEO of Skullcandy. 
and how he's managing a company that ships big, heavy hardware products through the supply chain crisis and looming recession. And Jeremy was game for all of it. We really got into it. This episode goes places. All right, Jeremy Andrews, the CEO of Traeger. Here we go. Jeremy Andrus, you're the CEO of Traeger Grills. Welcome to Decoder. It's great to be here. This is our 4th of July grill episode. Our producer Creighton and I have a joke that we're always going to do a grill episode around a summer holiday. Tell people what a Traeger grill is. So a Traeger grill, it's a backyard grill that uses all natural hardwood pellets as both the fuel and the flavor. The pellets, interestingly, uh, they're a byproduct of, uh, of a different manufacturing operation. We set up sawmills and we take the, the dust that's left over, we compress and make pellets. And a Traeger grill, what it really does is it gives you all of the benefits of cooking with wood, but it makes it easy. And so it's like you can, you can go from zero to hero, king of the cul-de-sac, being terrible at cooking, and suddenly you get a Traeger, and not only do you become great at creating this delicious wood-fired food, but you love the process, and it's the journey of learning to love to cook and getting better. Traeger does that, and, and it's, it's a disruptor. I mean, we view the outdoor cooking space as a space that's just lacked consumer innovation for decades, and we brought something better, and consumers are freaking out. They love it. So this is a, actually like a phenomenon in cooking. I, you know, Traegers went from a pretty small company to now there are Traeger influencers. You run an influencer marketing campaign. I see grill tips on TikTok. You have a huge suite of new competitors. There are like artisan pellet grills now. But the story of Traeger is actually really complicated. Right? The company was around for a long time. You were the CEO of Skull Candy, which is a headphones company. Yeah, which is how did you how do you go from doing classic consumer tech like headphones to where we are with Traeger now? I would say first of all, I'm an entrepreneur. I love building businesses. I love, you know, I love product. Before Skullcandy, I was actually developing hotels, and so I, I was not classically trained really to do anything except sort of find a business I had passion for and figure out how to build it. When I found Traeger, what was mesmerizing to me was the amount of passion that Traeger owners had for their Traeger. And it's sort of interesting if you think of the history. I, I was more of a, an early stage startup entrepreneur. Traeger was 27 years old when I met it. 27 years old, uh, based up in the Pacific Northwest, $70 million brand, sort of a slow grower over time. Definitely not a space I was looking at. Yeah, I love lifestyle brands, you know, interesting disruptive categories. And I thought of grilling and I just said, you know what? It's commoditized. It's boring. There's no money to be made here. And then I spent time with some Traeger owners. And I heard this undying passion that you just don't hear that often for any consumer product. I'm a passionate consumer of really great brands and it was mind-blowing to me that I had never heard of this thing called Traeger. I had no idea what a wood pellet grill was. And I sat down with Traeger owners back in 2013, and I heard them say things like, 
my Traeger changed my life. And that's when I, that, that sort of stopped me dead in my tracks. And I said, boy, I love food. I think food is really interesting as this sort of communal shared experience amongst humankind that's kind of been lost, you know, as society is more divisive and there's not time for food and food is calories. It's not experience. But I found these trader owners and I said, there's like, I don't know what this is, but there's something really special here. And that's sort of how it started. And I came in late. I mean, Joe, Joe Traeger founded this thing in the mid-1980s, and I, and I found it in 2013. So the company had been going on for a couple of decades there. You had been at Skullcandy. That company had gone public. You had left. You were doing private equity. You were looking for a company to buy and run, and you, you found Traeger. Beyond the elements of, okay, there's a great customer base, what were the elements of the business that attracted you to make the deal to acquire the company and come in and see you? I honestly, uh, it, it rested in like a single criterion, a, a single thing that I found, and it was the passion. I believe there was a business to be built, and I saw sorts of opportunities. But what, what I've realized in, uh, in consumer brands is that finding true product market fit like true brand energy is a really hard thing to do. And, and just having capital and like being really methodical doesn't get you there. I mean, you look at some of the best brands in the world, a Nike or a Coke, you know, they'll spend money and launch something and have it go flat. And so there's great method, but there, there's also, you know, there's some synchronicity and some luck to sort of really connecting with the consumer and it existed there and yet it hadn't been scaled. And so I was almost blind to all of the issues that existed in Traeger because I heard the passion and I said, it's not the industry I was looking for. I have no idea what the product is. I'm not a griller. My wife was the griller in the family, <laughs> if I were to be honest at the time. And you know, it was bigger than I was looking for. I was looking for a business doing, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars of revenue, found this one doing 70. And so it wasn't the profile I was looking for, but the passion that consumers had was it was not only fascinating to me, but there was passion for a product that was very rudimentary. It was like smoke medium high. You know, cooking is all about precision, <laughs> smoke medium high. And there was no marketing department. So I said, if this passion can be built with this product, there's a solution here that has a lot of legs. So you were an entrepreneur in residence at Solomir Capital. It's a private equity company. I think of the decoder audience as sort of every business school student in America. Entrepreneurship through acquisition is sort of like a hot topic in that set. There are different versions of it, but basically an entrepreneur like you, or you're either self-funded or you're at PE, you go out searching for a business, you buy it and become the CEO. Do you think that's a generally a good model? Do you think it worked for you because you found <laughs> the right company? Do you think that that is like a scalable model? It seems very hostile in a way. Yeah, boy, you know, I got to tell you, um, it's funny how you look at things leading into this sort of a process or prospectively, you know, I got lucky as an entrepreneur. You know, I connected with this guy that that had founded a, a snowboard audio helmet 
brand called Skull Candy, doing a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And I just said, this is awesome. We're going to build a business. And we built a $300 million business on $800,000 of equity. And that's just what you do, right? Well, I look back and I said, <laughs> that should never have worked. I mean, it's like, like there, there was so much that had to go right. And it did. And we made a ton of mistakes along the way, even if we did some things right. And so I went into this process looking for a business to buy. And I said, this is what you do. You join a PE fund. Uh, you've got this captive check. You find a business. You buy the business. You run it. You sell it. And that's how these things go. And honestly, I will say that um, Traeger has exceeded my wildest expectations. And I look back at that process and I realize that it's actually, as, as an operator, it's actually really hard to buy a business because you've got to find the right business, a business that you appreciate, a business that, you, that you're prepared to run, that you want to run, a business that needs a CEO, a business that's for sale, <laughs> capital that's willing to invest. It's like you've got this funnel that gets so narrow at the bottom and the bottom is a deal that, um, you know what, it, it went well. There was a lot to like. And I did realize early on that like myself setting out to buy a business and sort of the classic search fund model had very low likelihood. It's like I wasn't a deal guy. I love to invest as a hobby, but I wasn't a deal guy. And I joined Solomir. And then I told Solomir, I was like, look, don't pay me. Like I really respect those guys. And uh, they've become very good friends. But I said, I actually need a platform much broader than a single fund. And so I went out and I invested in a, I invested in a dozen other funds who were investing in the types of businesses that I wanted to buy. And suddenly there was a platform of a dozen funds who saw hundreds of deals every year and I barely got one done. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it is a little bit of a needle in a haystack and I really do consider myself incredibly fortunate that, you know, I not only found a business that had potential, but I found a business that I love and that speaks to me every single day. So that, that part seems like the key and the difference, right? Most PE deals are we're going to come into a company, we're going to load it up with debt, we're going to use that leverage to slash costs, we're going to trim up the company, that will increase margins, we'll pay back the debt, and then we'll flip the company at the end. And that's a very financialized model of yeah. private equity. Very clinical. Yep. Right. And But you're saying, well, I love this company. I do. And you know what? At first, I it wasn't the P&L, it wasn't the balance sheet. What I loved was the passion because as like I, I'm a student of great brands, I'm learning every single day. And I look back and I realize how little I knew then, but I felt compelled by the passion. Now, what happened as I got on the inside is there were two things that have really fueled me well beyond a private equity life cycle, nine years this month. The one was that I fell in love with cooking. And th this is really what Traeger, like I want people to fall in love with cooking because of the mission of, of the business. And that's the second piece I love. Um, you know, it's, it's to bring people together to create a more flavorful world. And that mission of bringing people together in community, in their backyards, with their families, on their cul-de-sacs, with their neighbors, those two things 
I came to love far more than just building a business. And, you know, I kind of came into it thinking, we're going to build a business and sell it. And I, I remember sitting with my private equity partner that I initially nine years ago, and I said, hey, look, uh, I've got real PTSD having run a public company where everything's about the quarter. And that, it's a really hard way to build a long-term business. And I have this belief that you can't even build a business the right way within a private equity holding period, like three to like three to three, four, five years. You've got to make investments and do the right thing every day. And I said, we're going to invest beyond your three to five years. We're going to build something great that lasts forever. But my intent was to build it and sell it. And I got into it and I fell in love with it. And I said, I never need to have another job. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the grass beneath my feet is so green. It's always a struggle, but I like our issues and I like where we're taking the business. And so I got to know at 13, became the CEO in January of 14, bought the rest of the business in June of 14. We sold two thirds of it in 2017. We took it public a year ago. And for me, these, these, mo these transactional moments, they just don't mean anything to me anymore. Now, I know they mean something to my investors and to my team, so, so that's important. But I'm here. Like I, this, this is the last thing I will do because I have so much passion for what we're building. I'm not sure why, I would, why or how I would find the passion somewhere else. So let me ask you the, the hard question with that. So you described this sort of standard private equity model or entrepreneurship through acquisition model. It's clinical. Sometimes it pays off handsomely for everyone involved. It often crushes the company underneath yeah, it, right? It does. Yeah. Do you think that's a good model? Like it, it obviously worked out for you and you found sort of a higher calling, but do you think that's a good model generally? Do you know what? Honestly, I, I, um, it can be a very challenging model. And my experience was we put debt on the business when, when we sold two thirds of it and the business, we had some challenges the year after our margins got hit. We had low cost competition that we had to figure out how to position around. We went from having, uh, let's say a very healthy amount of leverage to a very painful amount of leverage. <laughs> and we learned to run the business that way. And I will say that debt is a really interesting disciplinarian you know, um, we had to manage to covenants and the leverage was high. And so you've got to really figure out how you get a return on what you invest in the business. But look, you do see businesses run into issues. Businesses don't go up and to the right year after year after year. You know, over time, good businesses do, but they tend to do it in fits and starts and unpredictably. And when you over lever a business, particularly one that's intended to grow and growth is not predictable, you can find yourself spending more time thinking about balance sheet and liquidity and like, I'm going to keep the lights on than actually thinking about consumer and product and growth. And so it's something that, that, that we've really focused on. Even when we felt like leverage was high, it's like, we got to navigate this. This is a financial piece that we've got to navigate but we need to make sure that we stay focused on building something great long term. But it's, it's you know, the, the model is, um, you know, oftentimes it works out. Oftentimes it doesn't. 
I think it usually works out for the PE investors. I think like the question here is like, does it work out for the companies and the products and the consumers? And it seems like that's yeah. a coin flip every time. It's it's a coin flip. Look, here's what I will say. I think the greatest determiner of outcome, of course, you've got to buy a good business and you need a good management team. The quality of your private equity partner matters so much. And, and, and I've learned that and I've, I've had multiple private equity partners as an operator. I've sat on boards as an independent with other private equity partners. And I have incredible private equity partners starting with, you know, the, the first one I partnered with nine years ago, Trilantic. They were awesome. We worked together through it, brought in a, a group called AEA, the world's best partners who actually care about the business. And interestingly, unlike most private equity funds where it's all IRR. So it's not just, it's not, it's not just getting a return, but how fast can you get a return? <laughs> AEA doesn't view the world that way. They said, you can't deposit IRR in the bank. You deposit cash in the bank, the return. And so they didn't come in and say, we got to flip this thing fast. They said, let's do the right thing for this business. That's where value is created. And so I think who you partner with really matters uh, because I've, I've seen some tough stories and tough outcomes uh, for the operators who sort of came in and said, we're going to take a big swing and we want to generate some wealth for our families. As the financial partner, you've got, you've got this portfolio of risk. You know, as an operator, you have a portfolio of one. Do you think that this was all made easier because your partners had Traeger girls and they were like happy with the product? Like there's like a part of this to me that's like they all had the product and the product is real to them. That's actually a really interesting question. I would say a couple of things. Number one, when you become an entrepreneur, you don't realize until you've had a not so good financial partner that you're actually getting a boss. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's why you become an entrepreneur. It's like, you, you don't want to be employed and, and work for your, your W2 every other week. You want to make decisions and build something special. But when you partner with someone who genuinely cares about your success and, and recognizes that you built a business. And so, you know, they're betting on you, not financial structure and stuff like that. And they respect you as an operator and they believe in true partnership. That's the difference. And so uh, I would say uh, the funds that I partnered with, they've been incredible partners and they've actually become very good friends. The second thing I would say is they actually do really appreciate this business and they cook a lot. And I remember when, um, you know, this guy, James Ho, who's the lead director uh, from AEA on this deal, he came out to visit and he said, you know, I, I, I got to know you at a conference. You know, I kind of fell in love with your product. The firm bought me a grill. I started cooking. I fell in love with it. And I'm sort of rolling my eyes, not, not visibly saying, yeah, right. You like the PL. <laughs> and you know what? Truth is, he actually fell in love with the product. Like this is a guy who had never cooked and fell in love with it. And so not only does it help them appreciate the business and doing the right things for the business, but it helps them understand where, where and how to be helpful because they're actually consumers of your product. And so I do think that's, I, I do think that's a big deal. So that is what I would call the rosy version of the story. There's a version with a lot more drama embedded in it. 
Which oh, is, there's plenty of drama at Traeger. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't misunderstand. That's just not where the drama is. Right. So you take over the company as CEO. You wrote a story for Harvard Business Review where there was an arson at one of your shipping facilities that spurred you to reset the company, move it to Utah out of Oregon. You ended up in a lawsuit with one of the founders whose last name was Traeger because they had gone on to make a grill for a competitor and it was marketed as designed by Traeger. But you had bought the rights to that name. You can't make this stuff up, right? These are not true stories, are they? <laughs> they are. It's insane. It is very dramatic. Tell me how that went. You go in, the founders don't own the company, but somebody else does. You've got to push them out. You've got to reset the company. You've got to sue the founders. How did you manage through all of that? Yeah. So we actually bought the business from an entrepreneur who bought it from the founder. Phenomenal entrepreneur, uh, you know, bought a bank when he was 18 years old, moved to Hollywood, produced The Fugitive, a founded Planet Hollywood, Terminator, like really, really interesting entrepreneur. So he bought it from Joe Traeger, who's the founder. We bought it from this guy. And we initially made a minority investment. And uh, I had written a check for, you know, an eight-figure check that I pulled out of my, my skull candy uh, experience. And by the way, I didn't have two nickels to rub together when I co-founded Skull Candy. Fortunately, I married a woman who made good money <laughs> and 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 put a down payment on a house. But but so we took this hard-earned money from Skull Candy, and we parlayed it into Traeger with with my private equity partner. We bought forty-eight percent of the business, and I knew within weeks this was a disaster. The partner to remain nameless, um, he was a hard partner. And we saw the world very, very differently. And uh, I got a few months into it, and I just said, I, I can't build a great business as a minority partner with these constraints. And so we, we things came to a head. It got very spirited <laughs> very quickly. And, uh, you know, there was some um, conversations uh, that sort of knocked me off my horse a few times. And uh, we eventually, and we bought the business a few months later. You bought the partner out. We bought the partner out. So, so my private equity fund and I bought the owner, the, the entrepreneur owner, uh, who was the second owner of the business. Then we got on the inside and, and we sort of said, holy crap, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of dysfunction here. But then we got the opportunity to rebuild the business. And it was complicated and it was hard and it was a toxic place. And just as this thing is starting to go well, the founder of the business, Joe Traeger, who had sold it 10 years before, joins another grill brand and they start putting his name on the grills. I mean, like <laughs> on, on the collateral, on the grills. And I'm like, hold on a second. This is like Bill Marriott starting another hotel company and writing the name Marriott on the top, like name the brand. You can't just take your name anywhere and, and compete. And so we sued, we won. He can no longer do that. But back to one of your earlier questions, which is I fortunately had real stability in my partnership with my financial partner because there has been so much drama along the way. I mean, this moment that you describe of, you know, this, this incident of arson. I've never heard of anything like it. We're three months from having bought the business. You know, we had decided to outsource our fulfillment and distribution because it just didn't scale the way that it was configured. 
They had a stand-up meeting with, uh, with, with the warehouse team and said, hey, look, this is where we're going. We were very respectful. We'll pay you severance. You can look for a job on, on our dime for the next eight weeks. All sorts of things that, that we thought were the right thing to do to good human beings. This wasn't their fault. Next time we go back to the office, one of our 18-wheel rigs is it's up in flames. And it, it was like halfway melted, doused in fuel. And moments like this, you know, being an entrepreneur is like, it's wacky. No one really ever prepares you for moments that you can't anticipate like this. And there are moments where I said, boy, if this doesn't break me, then at least there's a good story. I don't know <laughs> if there's a good outcome, but there's a good story. And I just sort of look back and I say, what a, what a journey. Um, you know, I haven't loved every moment, but I appreciate how each of those moments have, have contributed to who I am today. And by the way, I'm halfway done with my journey and I'm looking at the next 15 or 20 years and saying I'm better equipped than I was when that truck was burning down. I'm better equipped than, you know, when when I saw my first pair of Skull Candy headphones get purchased at retail. So this journey is it's remarkable and it's definitely it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> This is the first arson story that we've had on Decoder, so congratulations. Uh, uh, first, first for everything, right? Yeah. So the the truck is burning down. This leads you to this massive reset of Traeger's culture, its executive team. How did you institute that? It seems like the right answer was just firing everyone and starting fresh. Yeah. yeah. You know what? It was the answer I eventually came up with, but, you know, it was um, – I would say, first of all, when you build your career in startups, you take for granted the fact that culture is built very organically. It's, it's built by the people you hire and how you behave and you know how, how you model your cultural values. I got into Traeger and very quickly I would show up and feel sick to my stomach. I mean, like how people treated me, how I saw other people work together and treat each other. And so I had tried to change the culture you know, pre-buying the rest of the business. And I just couldn't do it because no one viewed me as like really being in charge as CEO, but minority shareholder. After we bought the business uh, in June of 14, I really set out to change the culture. I was very deliberate and really determining through a lot of conversation and thought, what is the vision of our business and what are the cultural values that align with that and really help us build a team based around cultural values and like inform how we think about the future. And what are the values that I believe inspire people to show up every day and become their best selves? And I think culture is important for those two reasons. I failed miserably. I mean, like I, I didn't make any progress and, you know, people is very passive aggressive place where people were sort of respectful to my face and really, really spoke negatively behind my back. It was scary. And um, it was this moment of a truck burning down that I said, I'm done. I, I, I can't do this. I can't, I can't get anyone to think differently. There's too much inertia in this culture. They don't respect me. They don't aspire and like they're not respecting me, like neither here nor there, but they had no desire to change. And I realized that, you know what? Human beings don't change that much. 
they just like we, we kind of are who we are. And that's when I said, um, we're going to change the people. Uh, we're going to change out the people because we can't change the people. And that was a unique moment. And that, that, that was very clear to me when the truck was burning down and I'm in the bat, I'm in the locked bathroom, washing my face with cold water and just looking in the mirror and saying, number one, I don't have to do this. I do this because I love it and I hate it. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I've paid off the Subaru and, uh, my mortgage, so I don't, I don't need to put food on the table. And I feel, I fear for my life right now. And that's when I said, we're going to start over. And it took me a few weeks to sort of formulate the plan. And it took us, you know, 12 months to execute it. But I remember the moments I stood in front of the team in Oregon and said, you know what, this isn't working. When trucks are burning down in the parking lot and you're unhappy being here, it's not working. So here's what we're going to do. And that was like this burden lifted, this burden lifted. We said, we're going to build a new team, which we did. And we, we built a new team in Utah only because this is where I lived and I built Skull Candy here. So I knew people and I needed to build a team fast. It's a really interesting case study, I think. And, you know, we all say that we believe in culture, but I think organizations fail to do it well. And I had never really seen the impact of culture because, you know, in a startup, you have so many variables. You have product, market fit, you have team, you have financing, competition. But this is a case where, you know, 27 years to $75 million, eight, eight and a half years later to 10 times that size. You know, we still sell a wood pellet grill. Granted, it's a better one. What is the difference? The difference is it's, it's people and culture, and you kind of have to say those things in one breath. So you had an old structure. You got rid of all the people. You moved the company to Utah. You hire people you know. How is Traeger structured now? Uh, headquarter office in Utah. We've got an office in Europe that runs our European operation, an office in Shanghai that oversees our Asia sort of sourcing operation. And we're mostly based here in Utah. You know, I would say most of the headquarter uh, function. So we're, we're, let's say, 300 of our 800 people around the world are here. I'm the CEO, very, very actively involved. And I would say my, my greatest motivation, how it informs, you know, organization and strategy and vision is this belief that getting better and learning and developing knowledge and skills it's the most satisfying part of a career. And when you do that, others gravitate towards that and they want to do the same for themselves. And then you build this great business outcome. And so, um, you, you know, I think one of the things that we talk about daily is we are a disruptor. How do we make sure that we're never disrupted? And that really informs how I think about, you don't build team once, you build team every single day. You know, you, you top grade talent, you fill in gaps, you part ways with people who no longer contribute or, or are not cultural multipliers. And we're, some, we're somewhere early on this journey. You know, we're, we're a public company now. And so that informs some of the things that we have to do. But, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, being public is, you know, it's a financing vehicle the way that private equity is a financing vehicle. And what we really aspire to do is build something great that lasts forever. 
So you got 800 people, 300 people in Utah. How is that organized? How many people do you have building brushless motors for the new grill? How many software people do you have? The broader answer to that is we always think about where does success come from? Success comes from providing an experience that your consumer values and finds important. And so for us, the, the, the experience is driven by two things. Uh, it's driven by a differentiated product experience. And so we have a very substantive and good product organization that's always pushing the envelope on innovation and building better product. That used to be just the durable, the grill. 2014, we started working on the first cloud-connected grill, which we launched in 2017. And so it's consumer technology. And so a sister team to the product team is the digital team. It's like all of the digital experiences, the content that make it great. And so you've got product and then you've got brand. And I say brand, but what I really mean is community because that's the purpose of our brand team. And then everything else facilitates that. Everything else supports a better product and a better community for our customer. And so uh, so everything else is here. We've got finance, supply chain operations. The service operation is run here, but our call centers are outside of Utah. And so all of the headquarter functions are here. And then everything else around the world is either supporting uh, these core functions or it's, you know, it's, it's building out sales and marketing in a different market. We've talked about a lot of things, changing the company culture, deciding to do private equity, deciding to invest in Traeger. How do you make decisions? You know what? Um, decision making is um, it, it's something that I, that's evolved for me over time. Um, I make decisions quickly. I believe in gathering as much data as you can, as quickly as you can, but it's an 80-20 rule. It's 20% of the data that drives 80% of the knowledge, and then you make decisions based on your instinct. And I do it quickly, and sometimes I get criticized for making decisions and jumping to conclusions too quickly, but this is the culture I want to build. Let's not die a death of a thousand paper cuts of like unwillingness to make mistakes Let's make decisions quickly. That's what innovative, disruptive businesses do. And, uh, and, and that's how I move. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Jeremy to promise me that he's not going to DRM the pellets. Don't do it, Jeremy. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio? Designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Let's talk about the product side of it for a second. One thing I've noticed as I talk to CEOs who make that software investment is eventually the software investment dwarfs everything else, right? You've got just ongoing support costs. You've got to maintain the servers. You've got to keep that Amazon relationship going or wherever you're hosted on and on and on and on. It's AWS. Yep. Oh, so you're on AWS. So you, you just on and on and on. You've got to. Apple changes the App Store rules. Someone has to figure out if Eddie Q is going to let the Traeger app on the store. I can't yeah. imagine you've ever yeah. had any weird App Store issues, but that'd be amazing if you did. Is that happening to you where your software investment is starting to dwarf the hardware investment? An example I'll give you, we had the CTO of John Deere on the show, and he was like, John Deere now employs more software engineers than hardware engineers, which to me is just staggering. Is that? Are you yeah. on the same curve? Yeah, the, the the answer is yes. And um, is it yes right now or yes in the future? It's yes right now. I would I would say we've kind of hit that that inflection point. Some of it, to be fair, goes back to our strategy. And so over time, hardware hardware innovation slows down, and you know you certainly see that in you know in devices, um, you know handheld devices. You can only take things so far. And then it's it's the content and it's the software that really facilitate the differentiated experience. And so, you know, we spend a lot of money on both sides and we still have a lot of innovation in, you know, in the durable and the hardware piece. But, um, you know, the reality is that an IoT, a, a connected product has a lot of investment in server capacity, in uh, software development in content development, it's always evolving. You, you know, you, you launch a new grill and maybe you have three or four years of useful life. You launch a version of your app and the next month you're doing it again and you're always, always pushing the content pieces. The content piece is where we probably invest the most. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what changes the experience, but the model is expensive, but we think it's important. Over time, hardware commoditizes. And so we feel like Apple's a great model. It's the best hardware from a design perspective, from a usability perspective. Part of the reason for that is that they also develop their software and they curate the apps that can live on their platform so that they're good experiences. And, you know, we sort of think about our platform a little bit that way, which is we always want to have the best cooking device devices and sort of accessories, but we want to make sure that we're driving innovation in the content experience. So that all costs money, right? Keeping the servers going, developing new versions of the app, making new content. Right now, the revenue model of Traeger is I buy the grill, it's expensive, and that might be the end of my revenue relationship with you. How do you make sure that all balances out? Well, I would say a couple of things. Number one, the more grills we sell, the more grills we sell. And that's because we have a highly evangelical community. In fact, 
we'd always heard that, and, and we did a quantitative study. One of the things we learned is 80% of Traeger owners have recommended the brand to an average of six other consumers. And so highly evangelical. So the lifetime value of our consumers more than that, that, that person. Second is, you know, we improve the cooking experience through accessories and consumables. So accessories that create new modalities of cooking that make cooking from inside the kitchen out to the grill better. And then we sell a wood pellet and the wood pellet is the fuel. And so um, on average, a, a consumer is, you know, a Traeger owner is burning about 110, 120 pounds of pellets a year. We're vertically integrated around the pellets. But the other piece of wait, it is wait, that hold when on. Launch, You're not really there. Yeah. You can go buy pellets from anywhere and there's like a thriving pellet supply community of like different flavors. You're not going to like DRM the pellets, are you? No, no, no. Uh, you, you can, you can buy. I need a more, I need a harder core. No, say you're not going to DRM the pellets. No, no, listen, here's, here's what I would say is it's like other consumables. When you walk down a grocery aisle, you can buy Captain Crunch or like, I don't even know what the generic is because you buy the real, the real thing, but there is value in a consumable to the quality of the product and not all pellets are created equal. It's why we vertically integrated it because we actually build a better pellet. And if we want to get into humidity and smoke to heat ratio and bark input, stuff like that. Uh, that's what this show is all about. We did the first half on entrepreneurship. Now I want to do smoke to heat ratio. There's real science in, in, in the quality of the pellet. And the quality of the pellet really is an input to that cooking experience. But the other is that people trust brands. And so north of 90% of Traeger owners buy Traeger pellets when they have options to buy others. Why do they do it? Because they trust it. You know, it's food. They're cooking food. And, you know, we find that when you, when you buy a Traeger and everyone gives you this high five, dad, mom, you know, bro, that was, that was amazing. What we find is that they want to spend more time and more money on what they're cooking. And when you put a $150 brisket on your grill, you're not going to use cheap pellets and sub-optimize the result. And so, you know, the consumable is an important part of it, but we have to innovate on the consumable too. And it's got to be high quality. We've got, it's got to be well-packaged and well-branded. And so you, you can dump someone else's, you know, the same way that you buy a great car, you can put cheap gas in it. I just want you to promise me one more time you're not going to DRM the pellets. I don't have any plans to do that. Okay, thank you. You, you know what? If we were going to do that, uh, that would have been a great idea in 1987. <laughs> They're not, not going to be like a weird shape that no one else can make. No, no, I've just given you an idea. Dude smiling. This is bad. But, it's bad. No, no, Jeremy's no, smiling. No. Yeah, it's, it's, we, 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 we've had that conversation a thousand times over. And what, so what leads you to not do it? Do you, do you know what? Um, it's two things. Number one, when you have a very large installed base, it, it's actually not easy to, to completely cut over. The other is that we, we, we believe that it would be a lot more expensive to do that than actually build the best pellet and create the most loyalty. How many, how many like pellet engineers do you have? Is it hundreds of pellet engineers or just, no, 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 there's no, like no, a, no. there's a lab yeah. with like four people compressing sawdust. We have a lab and we're always testing. And I would say we spend more time innovating the quality of the pellet in, in independent of, you know, shape or cartridge, you know, printer cartridge model. It's like, we believe that, that we bring innovation through something that 
burns better, creates better heat, creates better flavor. We launch new new flavors frequently, uh, limited edition flavors. Uh, and so, look, that's where we spend our time from a pellet innovation perspective. Everyone is sort of affected by the supply chain differently. The pellets are obviously they're made of sawdust. There was a huge run on lumber in the middle of this pandemic. Did that affect pellet prices? Did it affect your wholesale prices? How did you handle that? Supply oh, supply chain, uh, the bane of my existence. <laughs> um, it's been a hard couple of years. And I would say on the pellet side specifically, we don't really fluctuate with the cost of wood because we're just ta- we're just taking the sawdust that comes out of the operation. It didn't affect the product cost much. I will say that the cost of transportation did. And so, you know, if you think about a 20-pound bag of pellets that costs $20 and, and suddenly transportation cost goes up very meaningfully, it really impacts margins. So, so we felt it there. The more painful part of supply chain really has been anything that we import from Asia. And it's been about transportation cost, you know, fuel surcharges, lead times. We used to be able to move things across the water in 25, 30 days, and now it's like 70, 80, 90 days. And so supply chain has become very unpredictable and very expensive. On the pellet side, fortunately, because we're vertically integrated, it's been relatively uninterrupted. We've just been hit by transportation cost increases. Do you do most of your manufacturing in Asia? Um, all of our consumables are produced in the U.S., so rub, sauces, pellets, but all of our durables are produced between uh, Vietnam and China. And, and I, I, I should caveat that with we've just started to produce in North America and Mexico, actually, which we've been working on for a couple of years. And and so we're, we're building more of a diversified portfolio of sourcing geographies. And, you know, China was just panacea for 20 years, low-cost labor, low-cost transportation, you know, fairly stable geopolitical, and that, that's all changed. And so, I, you know, we've been sort of diversifying outside of China for a few years now. There's a lot of tech in a, you know, a Traeger grill. You've got the Bluetooth components. You've got the, the temperature control. Were you affected by the chip shortage as well? Big time. Yeah, no, it's, it's been hard. The chip manufacturing industry is highly consolidated. The pandemic just accelerated digital adoption so rapidly. And we all compete for the same capacity. I mean, all of us with the biggest auto manufacturers, device manufacturers. So, uh, yes, that's been painful. Not only difficult to get, but paying significant premiums, many multiples to buy uh, inventory on the spot market where we can't get it otherwise. And uh, that's something that we continue to feel. And I, and I think that's it's going to continue the next couple of years. You're not on like the bleeding edge TSMC nodes at five nanometers, right? You're competing for older process nodes. We are not pioneering new technology. We're certainly not designing custom chips. So we're, we're integrating product around technology that exists. When you say you're not pioneering technology, do you have a, you must have a tech stack roadmap, right? Where you're saying, here are the capabilities that are going to come into the next chips. 100%. We do, but we are building product capability and, and product features and benefits based on technology that's, that's being produced at scale by much larger uh, manufacturers. Do you have like a standard chip supplier? Is there like a Qualcomm 
like wood pellet platform or do you integrate your own? No, we buy mostly from two of the largest global chip manufacturers, their names that you would recognize. We're very close to them and understanding their product roadmap so that we can, you know, as we're building two, three, four years in the future, we understand not only what are they building, but how does capacity come online? How do we start to sort of collaborate around when we could be customers for that? So we're market takers in, uh, in, in, in the chip world. I've heard you describe the Traeger Grill as an Internet of Things product, which is a very fun way to think about a grill. One of the things we talk about in Decoder all the time is once you turn something into a computer, you just inherit the whole stack of computer problems, things yes. crash. Yeah. Right? And you, the CEO of Skull Candy, I'm sure you know this as well as anyone, but things crash, you have ongoing support, yeah. people yeah. can't use the apps. Is that trade-off worth it? You know what? Uh, it's going to be worth it over time. I, I, I do believe it will be. And we, we actually, we hotly debated this early on when no one else was doing this because, y- you know, you go from having this static device sitting on someone's back deck and as long as you've tested it before it leaves your manufacturer, it's going to work. And when you have, you know, issues starting with, I can't connect my grill, oftentimes it's not our fault. But it becomes our fault. Like it, it becomes our problem. You know, someone needs an extender. They've put it too far from the house. They don't have Wi-Fi in the backyard, whatever it may be. You know, they call us. They don't call their, you know, whoever it is that supplies their internet connectivity. And so, so, so it starts there. But we're always evolving the product and we're pushing firmware and, and we're creating performance features and pushing them to the grills and that doesn't work perfectly every time for a lot of things that sit between, you know, even perfect code and a device, but there's no, there's no perfect code. I mean, like these things are iterative and you're always, you're always refining. And so we knew that it would create cost. I don't know that we anticipated how much it would create. Uh, with that said, I think we're getting better at managing it. And we really believe the future is, the device has to be great, but we're, we really aspire to build something that, it, that uses technology that is complicated behind the scenes, but is very, very simple and elegant to the consumer that inspires them to cook more and enjoy cooking at a higher level. So, so that is escalating cost. Are you just assuming that, right, it's just like skyrocketing costs for all that support? Is it just recurring revenue on pellets that's going to sustain it? Or are you going to have subscription software features like everyone else is doing? The, the pellets is an important part of this, but, but I would say we step back and think about lifetime value of customer. And in theory, if you're selling an experience, uh, regardless of how you monetize that experience, as a brand, you should be able to monetize it somehow. And so in theory, we get a premium. We sell the grill relative to our competition. We make margin of the pellets. Uh, if we are creating the right sort of cooking journey, the content and how we deliver the content should motivate you or me to cook more. When we cook more, what do we do? We buy more pellets. We evangelize more. Then there's a content piece of it. And that's, that's been an internal debate. Is there a content subscription model? Is there premium content? Is there a la carte content that you pay for with, with, with a base model free. I don't know that we've aligned on that. We simply say 
if we build the best product experience, that preserves optionality to monetize in different ways. And we're far from building what I think the experience is that we can build. And so we have a long way to go on the, on the technology and, and the content side. Uh, our consumers love it, but we think we can build something that's, that's much better. And, and un- un- until then, buy a Traeger grill, get the content, you know, buy any grill, get the Traeger content, but we're going to do it. We're going to do the digital experience better than anyone else. This sounds like you're pitching the Traeger Plus streaming service. Is that where you're thinking? Or is it you've got a meal kit service called Provisions? Is it that sort of? I would say it's it's not one of those things. It's all of those things. So so it's all of those things in willingness to pay as a function of how much a consumer values the experience. So you mentioned Provisions. You know, Provisions, it's an opportunity to bring people into cooking in a way that's less intimidating into, you know, cooking complicated cuts of meat like brisket that are not easy to source and not easy to cook and sides that take a lot of effort. So, you know, we, we always step back and say, before we talk about monetization, are we building a better cooking journey? And then is it something that a consumer values and will they pay for it somehow? We need to take another break, but when we come back, we talk about some of the post-pandemic inventory issues that Traeger is dealing with in retail stores. We're back with Jeremy Andrews. You recently acquired Meter, which is a connected thermometer. I have a meter. I bought it way before your acquisition. I always wondered, is this company going to last? Like, The only business model I see here is selling ever more thermometers. Or like betting yeah. that, like me, you will lose one meat thermometer a year. Is that the same business that you've got there? So meter's interesting. Uh, we, we initially reached out to meter as, as one of many sort of options of integrating technology into product that we literally just launched a few months ago. And we fell in love with the meter product. And it, if you look at the space they play in, the U.S., for example, there are 22 million meat probes sold every year. It's <laughs> well, insane. Like, well, I would who, just say like, most of them are bad. Like, I have so many because most of them are bad. They're consumables. Most of them are like sub 20 bucks. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, the, the bet that we made on meter was it's a similar bet to the one that we make on Traeger every day, which is if you find a consumer who uh, loves cooking at home or is, willing to, is going to learn to love cooking at home, if you can help them love cooking at home, and you can deliver a better experience, are they willing to pay a premium for innovation? And we believe the answer in meter is yes, and it's very, very closely tied to what we're building at Traeger. And interestingly, a very small percentage of the installed base of meter owners actually own a Traeger. So our ability to speak to all of the meter consumers, the, the, the meter owners, and we already know they pay a premium, they value home cooking, and, and vice versa. To speak to the two and a half million Traeger grills out there, you know, 95% of whom don't own uh, a meter, it's a very similar experience. And then to integrate them into the same product we think is compelling. You know, how big is the market today for $100 meat probes? Not that big. How big do we think it can be? It depends how well we lead. So that meter has the same sort of 
software cost problem, right? There's a Bluetooth stack. There's an app they have to update. Yeah, yeah. They have to get past EDQ. I love the idea of a meat thermometer app getting caught up in the app store. Topic for a different day. But they've got to do all that stuff. They have a Wi-Fi model. They have a cloud service. All the same costs. How are you going to defray those costs beyond just selling more meat thermometers at a premium? So I would say, number one, uh, there's scale to the platform. Number two, uh, one of the things that that we loved about Meter was their capability in IoT. If I were to be honest, they had a deeper capability in uh, creating product and managing the ongoing costs more efficiently. And so uh, we're learning from them, which is sort of interesting to buy a business much smaller, but to know they have capabilities that you can learn from. And um, again, I, I think over time, it's there, there's a virtuous cycle to the Traeger, the meter, the ongoing consumption of the consumables, and then the trade-up when new innovation comes out in the evangelism. When you acquired Meter, you sort of made the classic promise, we're going to leave this company alone. We know you love it. We're going to leave them independent. Are you just going to leave them independent? Are you integrating over time? That is a, it's a very interesting and a very timely question. And we did this, we, I've done this before at, at Skull Candy. We bought a, a business called Astro Gaming. At the time, it was a $9 million brand business, great product, great brand. And we had to sort of figure out how do you integrate while respecting the culture and the people and what they've built. And yet, how do you bring to bear some of your platform synergies that actually have real value? And I would say the, the, the first rule of thumb that I learned is do no harm, which means don't do much of anything up front. Like, just listen. Develop trust, listen. I would say we're still very much in that, that phase with Meter. We're almost a year later. Or actually, we're exactly a year later. You know, there were some bumps along the way. Entrepreneurs uh, become, again, they're entrepreneurs. They're used to making their own decisions. And they get acquired by a company that's about to go public. And suddenly, so you not only have, you know, the process and discipline of a big company, a bigger company, we're still tiny, big relative to, to meter, but you have all of the process of being public. And that that created some challenges. But... Um, I would say uh, we really like them, not just from a product company perspective, but they've become our friends. And when you're willing to take the time to not integrate and listen more than you scheme and plan, then, then what happens is you collaborate around the integration as opposed to making it sort of a unilateral conversation. Now, have we done it perfectly? No. There were some bumps along the way. Even with that philosophy in mind, you know, I'm not the guy that owns all of the conversations. People talk at mid-levels of the business, and everyone is well-intended, but not everyone has the same sensibility to how these things are just very personal and very emotional when you're when you're a startup business. And so uh, we're, we are integrating where it makes sense and where it's not a core capability. So where do you start? Financing accounting. You know, it's not their passion. <laughs> their passion is product and brand. And so we're integrating where we can be helpful. Uh, we're trying to bring our retail channels to bear. They are predominantly an e-commerce business, direct-to-consumer and third-party e-commerce accounts. And we're predominantly a brick-and-mortar retail business with like less than 10% of our business sold online. 
we're bringing some capabilities to them. They're bringing some to us. And I would say early on, we tiptoed around sensitive issues and we stepped on toes. And we're at a point where I think we know and like and trust each other enough that we can actually speak very openly about sensitive topics without offending and get to better answers and sort of assuming. You said it was timely. What, may, what makes that question timely? Uh, look, we're, we're a year in and um, we talk about this every day. And I would say that the first six months, it was hard. It was hard. And part of it was hard is about a business before going public and like they couldn't really travel here. They're based in the UK. It was hard to go back and forth. And I would say it's timely because it feels like over the, the, the last sort of 90 days or so, we're kind of hitting our stride. The trust has allowed us to do more. And early on, everyone looks at these things cynically, and it was, it was hard for both of us. So you mentioned the pandemic making it difficult. We've talked about it a little bit. One of the stories lately is that retailers dramatically overstocked on home goods when there was that surge of demand. Now they've all arrived due to all of the supply chain concerns and the demand isn't there. So Target, Walmart, et cetera, they're all saying, look, we're overstocked on outdoor furniture and grills. Has that hit you? Yep. <laughs> How badly is that hit you? <laughs> Boy, this is, there's only been two times in my career where I've seen consumers turn on a dime. The first time was the spring of 2020, and that was driven by a pandemic. The second time was the spring of 22, and that was driven by consumers coming out of a pandemic and sort of the behaviors that they, that they had leaned into during the pandemic. And so what we saw was, I think it's twofold. Number one, everyone loaded up on inventory because inventory was unpredictable. Uh, retailers did and brands did. And then you get into the spring and you see this really, this about face shift, like remarkable shift from consumers buying things to consumers buying experiences. And if you listen to the, you mentioned the target, target and their inventory issue, you know, target announced on, I think it was their, it was their last earnings call. They said 12 months ago, we could not keep bikes in stock and now we can't sell them and like loaded up on inventory. And they said luggage, which is like the steady eddy category, like boring, steady category is up 50%. <laughs> Meaning consumers said, we're done buying things and we're, we're going on vacation and buying experiences. So we felt that. Fortunately, you know, we are, we're in a reasonable inventory position. I'd say we're slightly heavy, but not egregiously so. Our retailers for Traeger are slightly heavy, but not egregiously so. But what you compete with is everything else that they have in inventory. And so we were actually talking to a large retailer a week ago saying, hey, look, we're looking at this model. It's selling well. Inventory, your inventory levels are getting low. Can we get some inventory moving? They said, you know what? We're heavy on everything. We just don't have space for it. And so you're kind of battling like, absolute warehouse capacity. And I think this year across the world of consumer is going to be, you know, it's going to be the year of the promotion. And these, like the bullwhip effect is so interesting. It's from, we can't get inventory till we have too much. 
And mark my words, 12 months from now, retailers are going to underplan their inventory because they're not going to do this again. <laughs> and uh, I don't say that with any criticism. You know, Target and Walmart are very good at planning inventory. It's just very hard to plan by definition when your lead times are completely unpredictable and consumers are shifting behaviors so quickly. It's a hard moment in time to sell things. Uh, a, a friend of mine is the founder of Qualtrics, and I was lamenting to him over dinner a few weeks ago that, gosh, like inventory is so hard like, to run a software business where you have no inventory. <laughs> and he kind of gave me an earful on all of the other things, that <laughs> challenges that, that they have that, that we don't. So uh, you, know, you, you don't make the big bucks because doing business is easy. Do you think that's going to affect how you roll out new models, right? I think the idea of a, yeah. new, a new grill coming out on the same cycle as like new iPhones is very silly. But I get the press releases from you and Weber every season. We've upgraded some features. Yeah. Here are the new ones. Would you slow that down and just say, we're just going to sell what we have? Let me just really be really clear and say, when Weber launches something new, it has a new knob or a new color. <laughs> um, no disrespect. No, this, this but we time believe... they got Bluetooth. I look at the press releases. We, we believe in innovation that, that actually changes the user experience. So we launched something that uh, had the first ever outdoor induction cooktop and had a completely new thermal system that manages ash and grease. And it has wireless meat probes. I'll stop there. I just thought if I could sell a grill, I would. Yeah, um, by all means. So, um, but the, the answer is it does make us think, more cautiously on inventory when we launch. Now, on a positive, we're not launching things that obsolete themselves. And when, when you're in like this quarterly apparel fashion business, you over you, you know you overbuild and you are discounting. For us, it's a function of how we tie up cash in inventory. And um, you know, at launch, you have the ability to hold on inventory longer if it doesn't. Uh, if it does, if it doesn't move as fast as expected, but there's no question. We are thinking a lot more about efficiency of inventory than ever because we sit on a lot. And, and I would also say that this world over the last couple of decades has been built for just in time inventory. That model, I think, is uh, it's a hard one right now. And so, you know, as long as producing, as long as the lead times, from when you cut a purchase order to when you get when inventory arrives at the customer, as long as they're not predictable, I do think that we're living in a world that's going to just have to hold on to more inventory than it than it has the last ten or twenty years. Do you think that's going to slow your rate of innovation? I don't think it will slow our rate of innovation, but I think it will it will force us to be more efficient in how we deploy working capital. Because at the end of the day, you have, you have a finite amount of working capital and you can't deploy it everywhere. And so as inventory consumes working capital, innovation's not where I would slow, but there are other places where we're going to have to slow spend because you, you can't, you, you know, the, the, the pie is the pie. You have mentioned running the public company several times now. You, you ran Traeger as a private company for seven years with private equity partners that were bought into a long timeline. You've been public for a year. What's the difference? I mean, you, you now you have, you've got to do earnings reports. He's, he's firing an imaginary gun in his head. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? So 
this is an interesting question. Um, I loved running a private company. I really did. You have a financial partner, you have a consumer, you have a team, and you go to work. And you don't screw around with like nuances of storytelling and you don't sit with like investors telling the same rudimentary story. I really love doing it. When we took um, Traeger on the road, on the road meaning um, Zoom, (laughs) on the IPO Roadshow, I would say half of the investors brought to my memory a quote from the Harvard Business Review article, which said I would never run a public company again. that that didn't that didn't age real well, and I, 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 as it started coming out of their mouth, I'm like, I get it, I get it. Let me let me answer before you ask the question. Running a public company is hard. Running it in this environment is really hard. It's really hard for two reasons. Number one, demand patterns are unpredictable, and public markets value predictability. Costs are through the roof, and so margins are squeezed, like doubly hard. And then the public markets have just been cratering for the last six months. And so this is a hard moment to run a public company. It's kind of cool when you do something the second time 10 years later and you're less intimidated by it and you do it better and you feel more confidence because you have more perspective and you have more pattern recognition. Do I wish we were navigating some of these challenges with a single investor, absolutely. It'd be a lot easier. Do I begrudge the adversity that we're going through and what I'm learning from it? No, because it's going to make us better. But it's hard. Running a public company, is, uh, it's, it's hard. Um, it's a lot more fun when everything's going up and to the right. All right. You brought up an old quote, so I want to end on an old quote for real. In 2017, you said to Forbes, we're going to be a billion-dollar brand in five years in terms of revenue. It's 2022. It's five years later. You said you were 10x when you started, which was a $70 million company. Are you a billion-dollar brand? Well, so um, what I can tell you is what we've guided Wall Street towards this year. <laughs> There's the public uh, and, company and, CEO. He's, and and, and that, that's, that's the world I live in. Uh, and, and I will also say five years uh, meant starting um, January 1 of 2018. All right. So you got one year so, to go. Ask me that question 12 Are you going to hit a billion now. in 2023? Sure hope so. All right. That's great. Jeremy, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much for being on the cutter. I enjoyed it. A ton of fun. Thanks. Thanks again to Jeremy Andrews for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. And as many of you have noticed, if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.